Hello, and welcome to Notes on History, a podcast by a historian who has no idea how to make a podcast. Last week, I spoke about archaeology, a field of study related to history and one without which the historian would be grossly unprepared. The point of last week's episode was that a good historian does not have to be an archaeologist, but a good historian does have to understand the basics of what archaeologists do and keep up to date on new developments in the field. Now, not every historian needs to have the same level of understanding. A historian who focuses on ancient Greek studies, for example, needs to be very familiar with the relevant archaeology, while a historian who studies the modern presidency will find him or herself more impacted by fields of study like, say, economics. That's my own ham-handed way of segueing into today's topic, by the way. Today, the discussion is going to focus on another related field of study. Understanding some of the basics of economics, and sometimes the more intense details, can help a historian understand the context of the times being studied and the way the times change. Now, today, I'm not going to discuss modern economics. I think the nitty-gritty details of economics should be left to the economists, and I am not an economist. I'll talk about modern economics only insofar as to explain how things used to be different. Besides, in tough economic times, talking about economics is a great way to offend the political sensibilities of half your audience. Uh, You remember what I said about history and self-image? If you don't listen to the first two episodes, just to recap, what we have to say about history can sometimes say more about the historian than about the subject at hand. The same goes for economics. What I'm going to do is talk about an economic trend and show what historians can learn from it and what historians can tell us about it. Now, onto the topic at hand. Even if we don't really understand economics, we all have a, a vague, ambiguous idea of what it is. It's that thing they talk about on the news whenever Cardi B isn't being a good role model. Uh, which is to say it's amazing how much they do talk about economics. It's the field of study that analyzes how goods and services are made, distributed to people like you and me, how you and I buy and sell stuff, things like that. And this is going to be the concept we'll talk about, how people buy and sell stuff. Good old money, greenbacks, the almighty dollar, or in this case, the almighty denarius. I like going back to the Roman well for topics when I specifically want to avoid modern politics, and economics can turn deeply political very quickly. Uh, But of course, I can get away with it when I use Roman examples, since uh, nobody gets offended and says, Ah, those Visigoths took our jobs, or make the patricians pay their fair share. Besides, the money used by the Romans and the way it changed over time is one of my very favorite topics. I, I know, I know. I spend my time studying Roman currency reforms of the 3rd century. I use random Star Trek references in everyday conversation. And I've procreated? How can this be? Believe it, my friends. Believe it. It's actually a a pretty neat topic once you get into it. And what we're about to find out says a lot about what the world used to be like and about our own economy today. In today's world, You can go to McDonald's and ask for a cheeseburger off the dollar menu, and the cashier will expect, nay, demand, that you give them one dollar before they give you one cheeseburger. But what is a dollar? It's far less than a dollar's worth of paper. So what makes it worth a cheeseburger? 
Well, we have what we call a fiat currency. That just means that the dollar is worth something, not because the government has a bunch of gold sitting around in Fort Knox to back that dollar up. Uh, we actually don't back up the dollar with precious metal anymore. Uh, what makes it worth something is the fact that the federal government states that they will accept dollars, and only dollars, as payment for taxes. That makes people want dollars. That's what we're used to. Prior to this fiat currency, we did back up the dollar with precious metal, meaning that if you walked into a bank, you could exchange that dollar bill for one dollar's worth of something we all believe has real value, i.e. gold or silver. In fact, let's cut the middleman. Coins used to be made from gold and silver, none of this nickel-plated copper junk. You didn't even need a piece of paper telling the McDonald's cashier that it's okay to take this piece of paper in exchange for a cheeseburger. You knew you held actual silver in your hand, and the government guaranteed it was real by stamping it with a government-sanctioned design. And that's how it was in the Roman world. The Romans used a wide variety of coins, just like we do today. But they didn't base it off the decimal system, which can make it confusing to modern people used to dealing with straightforward dollars and cents. I mean, even the British did away with the tuppence and the crowns and guineas and all that. But the Romans rarely got rid of something that had once worked in the past. Uh, their reluctance to do so is actually a defining feature of Roman society. They were incredibly conservative in this regard, and I mean conservative with a small c, not a big c. For the purposes of this discussion, I'll keep it simple so you only have to remember one type of coin, the denarius. It's where we get terms like dinero, and it's why the British still abbreviate penny with a D. There's, there's no way, and I want to get, make this clear up front, there is no way to convert a dollar into a denarius. We're simply too far removed, but for the sake of this conversation, think of the denarius as being their version of a dollar. It's not a, a perfect comparison, but it was the currency that everyone counted in. Now, when Nero was emperor, about 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, the way you produced a denarius was you took a, a pound of silver, meaning pound meaning a weight, not like British money, but a weight, a pound weight of silver, and that silver was about 90% pure. That's pretty crummy by today's standards, uh, but the Romans were okay with it. You divided that pound of silver into 96 pieces and stamped each piece with a design so one pound of silver made 96 coins. The design let the holder know that the government guaranteed that this was real silver and not a forgery, just like our own money has intricate deni uh, designs on it to let you know that it's not monopoly money. So we're all Romans and we all agree that silver has value, meaning we want it, and when we spend it, the person we're trading the silver to knows that he or she can use that silver to make another transaction, and then another, and another. As I said, when Peter was being crucified upside down and Nero was singing his heart out at festivals, the denarius was 90% pure silver, and that purity made people confident that when they went about their business, they could take that coin as payment for the ancient equivalent of a cheeseburger, and they would have something valuable to show for it. A hundred years later, when Marcus Aurelius was emperor, the denarius was 75% pure silver. Take any denarius, and you knew that three quarters of it was actual silver, and one quarter was other crummy stuff that just happened to get into the mix. That's not 
That's not too bad. A denarius was worth 15% less than it had been a century earlier. We expect some inflation. Uh, we expect typically, you know, 2 or 3% inflation a year before our current economic funk, that is. So this is actually a, a pretty solid record. They cut the purity of the silver so the government could save money. Basically, they stretch a pound of silver out 15% by cutting the purity so they could produce slightly more coinage using the same amount of silver. But it was a small enough change that the man on the street didn't mind, and he still had confidence in the money. Thirty years later, when Septimus Severus was emperor, the denarius was 50% pure. Forty years after that, the silver coins minted under the emperor Gallienus were 5% pure. What happened? Something happened. History intersected with economics. That's what happened. The century of time, from Nero to Marcus Aurelius, when the denarius went from 90% silver to 75% silver, was a pretty good time for the Romans. The Roman state had its ups and downs, including a brief civil war. But for much of that time period, there was stability and there was peace. Now, it wasn't a real free market capitalist economy for a number of reasons, but Star Trek fans will recognize one of the rules of acquisition at play here. Peace is good for business. Wow, the history of Roman currency and an obscure Star Trek reference. Try not to be blinded by my awesomeness. This period of peace was important if you operated a business of any kind. It wasn't just that you could do business in your own hometown. You could do business anywhere. Let me ask you this. Who are America's two largest trading partners? The biggest trading partner is China, which makes sense because they have a billion people and most of the stuff in your house comes from there. But that's a recent change. Just 10 years ago, they didn't hold the top spot. So who's second? It isn't Japan, which is what most people might think. It isn't Britain or Germany or any other European country. It's Canada which has a population something like 30 or 32 times less than our biggest trading partner, China. How can that be? The answer is simple. Ease of commerce. Not to force the political point too much, but making it easier to do business is surprisingly helpful for the economy. During this peaceful time in Roman history, you could cheaply ship goods by sea from one end of the known world to the other without fear of rampant piracy. You could transport goods on quality roads because many legions had nothing better to do than construction work. You knew what tariffs and fees you would have to pay to import and export goods. There were no surprises. There was stability. The term Pax Romana is applied to a large chunk of this time, and it didn't mean what the it didn't mean that the empire wasn't at war. It meant that the empire wasn't at war with anyone who could get past the, the hard chocolatey shell to disturb the creamy nougat insides of the empire. The evidence provided by the archaeologists supports the historian, who can understand the materials that compose the coins as a reflection of the economy. Inversely, the historian supports the archaeologist by providing a backdrop, a context, to these artifacts. So what happened after Marcus Aurelius, the, the point after which the quality of these coins starts to turn sour? Well, Joaquin Phoenix happened, if you're a movie buff. Uh, actually, Commodus just didn't have any finesse for the job, and after he died, there was another civil war, a pretty nasty one this time. And when it was over with, the government was in serious debt. 
I'm not going to get too deep into how the Romans collected taxes here, but there was not supposed to be any debt. They collected money first, and then they spent it. And when they ran out, they ran out. Without a fiat currency or paper notes backed up by precious metals, the Roman government ran on a strictly pay-as-you-go system, where everything was paid for up front. Taxes couldn't just be raised any time they needed more money, and even if they could, you wouldn't have the money as soon as you needed it. When they needed money in a hurry, they did one of a couple of things. Uh, they could auction off government assets, which was a pretty common uh, solution. But they didn't, if they didn't have the assets to sell, or they lacked the willpower to part with those assets, they acted like teenagers who have gotten into their parents' liquor cabinet. They took vodka out and poured water in, meaning they cut the silver. And then they cut the silver again, and again, and again, and again. And don't you know, pretty soon it became habit. By the way, I know for some of you history buffs out there, I am setting aside tax farming uh, for the moment. Uh, don't worry, a later episode might cover tax farming, but uh, that's neither here nor there. In the 50 years from Severus to Gallienus, when the silver was cut from 50% to 5%, the Roman Empire was utterly collapsing, and it was pieced back together again. No fewer than 28 emperors came and went in a 50-year period. Most of them died violently, and each time a new one sprang up, they had to bribe the army to join them, and then they had to figure out how they were going to pay for it. So they cut the silver to make more coins, but each coin contained less silver. And then the next chump to declare himself emperor had to come up with more coins to make the soldiers think that they were getting a good deal, and the cycle repeated itself over and over again. Not for nothing, but remember how that design on the coins was supposed to give you confidence that all was well with the money? When the great conquering general Vespasian's face was on the coins, you trusted the coin because you trusted the man. When the wise old administrator Nerva's face was on the coin, you trusted the coin because you trusted the man. When the sun-worshipping transvestite gay hooker Elagabalus was staring back at you, you set aside your powerful urge to congratulate him for living his truth, because he was so, so very brave, and you trusted the coin because you put it through a strict inspection to make sure that it was what it said it was. Because the political class was playing games with the currency, the man on the street, was getting paid in money that was worth less and less each time, meaning he needed more and more of it just to stay afloat, since somewhere higher up the supply chain was someone who knew darn well that the coins weren't worth a damn. And so now the evidence provided by the archaeologist supports the historian, again, who can understand the economy as a reflection of the condition of the coins. Now, did all this, uh, this trend spell doom for the Roman world? No. As it happened, when this crisis of the 3rd century was over with, the Roman state pulled itself back onto its feet again, uh, but the Roman Empire that emerged from the crisis was not the same Roman Empire that went into it. Uh, towards the end of the period, the Emperor Aurelian issued new coins, which seemed to indicate that the currency was being reset. In other words, you could hand in 20 of the old coins in exchange for one of Aurelius's new coins, which vaguely did the job of 20 or so old coins without the drama. We saw something similar maybe, uh, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago. I guess it must have been in Zimbabwe. 
when hyperinflation got so bad, the government would announce every day how many zeros to take off the end of prices in order to make the money work. And just as a heads up, when your economic situation is being compared to Zimbabwe, you've got trouble. To be fair, in the Roman Empire, it never got quite that bad, or as bad as Germany did in the 20s, when workers were paid several times a day so that they could run out and buy stuff before their money was worth more as toilet paper, which would actually happen within hours. Like anything else in the Roman world, the change occurred over decades or centuries. And of course, long-term problems have long-term effects. Medieval historians will note how after the Roman Empire was dismantled in the West, the average Joe on the farm didn't deal with coins on a regular basis. Remember when I said that the average Joe on the farm needed more and more and more money if the money was going to be worth less and less? Well, eventually, Farmer Joe gave up on money and instead went to work for someone who paid him in food and security. Most people began to pay their way strictly on the basis of selling their labor without any major medium of exchange. Now, please, don't read too much into this in terms of what we can expect in today's world. Yes, the government in recent years has watered down the dollar by printing more and more of it. And yes, stability and knowing what the future holds would be just super. But the fortunate difference here for us is that the Roman world was run during this time by idiots who wouldn't have known fiscal responsibility if it bit them in the butt. So, um, yeah, I... Uh, I'm actually not really sure how to finish that sentence. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's that's awkward. I'm Paul Stetzel. Thanks for listening.